Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning through the precious blood of Jesus, your Son. We come to you based on His righteousness, His completed work of atonement. We don't come to you based on anything we can do. We come to you as beggars who have been made rich through the poverty of Christ and His humiliation. And then blessed through His resurrection and His continued intercession for us. We are thankful that we are here this morning through Christ and through Your grace. We are thankful this morning that Your Spirit is here You are convicting us of sin and you are guiding us into your word and that you are going to edify your church this morning. You are going to nourish us as we look to Christ for our righteousness this morning. And we rejoice in your compassion. We thank you, God. We thank you for this time. Jesus, we love you. We confess this morning that our love for you is Not what it should be, but one day you will make it what it ought to be. And you will continue to progressively change us until that day through the washing of your word. So we pray, God, wash us this morning and draw us closer to Christ so that we could bring you the praise that you deserve. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you all here this morning. It's good to see a lot of visitors here this morning. We are here this morning to celebrate the cross. We're here to celebrate God's grace. We have much to celebrate when we come to the Lord's table today. When we come here to this table, we're celebrating our communion with God. Communion of sinners now transformed by His Son. We are in communion with the Holy One because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And our celebration is built on a message. It is objective. It's built on a message that is actually too good not to be true. Our celebration is based on a message that came directly to us from God Himself. We call that message what? The Gospel, right? The Gospel reveals God's grace came to us through the life, through the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest news that this world has ever heard. That is the greatest news that any of us as great sinners have ever heard. We have greatly sinned and offended God, and God in His mercy has sent someone who is greater than our sin to take our place, to appease His righteous demands. That makes this message of grace really somewhat hard to believe. It's hard to believe because, first, the gospel reveals God's holy nature. It reveals God's holy standards that we fail to obey and to honor. The gospel reveals our inability as sinners indwelt with sin from birth and we actively pursue sin throughout our life. It reveals our inability to please God because of our depraved nature. It reveals that in the scripture. If you look with me quickly at Romans 3, you can see that. Romans 3, 10. This is part of the gospel message. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see the progression of our depravity. It starts on the inside, works into the throat, comes out the mouth, moves our feet, and evidences that we have no fear of God within our hearts, apart from His saving grace. Even His Word tells us that by His law, we have broken and offended His righteous demands. If you go further in 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law exposes our sin that maybe was covered up, but now we see it clearly. But by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in in God's sight. Since through the law, 
comes knowledge of sin. But here's where the good news comes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a full payment, an appeasement offering, to be received by faith. The bad news comes first, then comes the good. The Bible reveals in that text there that we are incapable and unwilling to come to God on our own, but God has done something for us. He has sent His Son to take our place. But the message of the gospel begins with this, that God demands perfect obedience to His law, to His Word. God's message reveals this to us clearly throughout from Genesis to Revelation. Perfection is required. Man is a sinner. We fall short. We need someone to take our place. We need a substitute. And that's what God's message in the gospel reveals also. If our depravity is hard to believe, the next part's even harder to believe. God tells us in Scripture that we are depraved sinners separated from His communion, but in His grace and mercy, He reveals to us that He Himself would come into the world to satisfy the demands He lays upon us. And He comes into the world through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son. Jesus becomes our substitute. That is the message that's at the heart of this table before you this morning. That is the message of the Lord's table, of our communion with God. And what I want to do this morning, I want us to celebrate God's message by looking at what this message is based on today. And we'll do that by looking to the prophet Isaiah to direct us to the message of the gospel this morning. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah 53, we'll read the text. And that really would be sufficient But I can't leave it alone there because, as Nate pointed out, I can't be brief. There is too much gold to be refined from this text. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. And I want you to hear this morning the gospel revealed here in Isaiah. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet... We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Church, that is speaking directly about us, not just Israel in the Old Testament. That defines to us the essence of the gospel. It lays us at the feet of the cross as the guilty ones who were there crucifying Christ. And then it shows in God's righteous grace that Jesus was the one who was taking that punishment in our place. And that we will be made and accounted righteous, as it says, imputed a righteousness from Jesus that we could never earn. And that only Jesus could actually achieve for us. That is the gospel. Isaiah 53, 1-12, teaches us that the gospel celebrates three things. You can write this down. It teaches us that the gospel celebrates, number one, God's humiliation. God's humiliation. And secondly, it teaches us about God's compassion. God's compassion. And thirdly, the gospel message celebrates, number three, God's satisfaction. The gospel that Isaiah preached, the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that Jesus preached, teaches us about God's humiliation, God's compassion, and God's satisfaction. Isaiah 53, just so you have a little bit of a historical understanding, it reveals to us really an incredible message that it was hard to believe in Isaiah's day that God would put forth a suffering servant to be the redeemer of his people. That servant would be Jesus God the Son. And this message here in this text was a prophecy about that. It's a prophecy about God's promised anointed Messiah who was, again, Jesus the Christ. He is God incarnate. This being spoken of here. This is almost, again, too good not to be true, isn't it? We have fallen short of God's standard, so God does something. He comes to complete the standard for us to satisfy His own demands in our place. That's just amazing. The Holy One would leave glory and come into the earth and be humble. In this passage, we don't see Jesus revealed in His glory in heaven, do we? We see Him coming to earth revealed in a unique way, humbly brought low to be a man like us to suffer in our place. In Isaiah 53, we see God the Son add to His deity humanity and take on flesh for God's glory. That is the main purpose in His humiliation. It is to purchase a people for His Father through His blood. And He will get everyone He dies for. In this prophecy, we don't just see the fact that He's taking on flesh. We see why He takes on flesh. We see that Jesus comes into the world to sympathize with us. He comes in and suffers like us. He suffers agony and He suffers the death that we deserved. He is showing us the love of God in this. He's dying for sinners like me and you. In Isaiah 53, we see a picture again of the Lord's table. We see what's portrayed here Visibly, we see the gospel. We see a picture of the love of God in Isaiah 53 for sinners. That's what we see when we look at the Lord's table as well. It's a visible sermon, one that we can see and tangibly touch and taste. But it comes from this message that's revealed in the Scriptures. So number one, at the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating God's humble incarnation. That is what is revealed here in the first three verses of Isaiah 53. It says here, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah begins there at the first verse saying, this message is hard to believe. It will be hard for you to believe because it is spiritually discerned. 
It is a miracle. It says there in the very first verse that it is actually God revealing His arm of grace through the incarnation of His Son. The God who took them out of Egypt, out of bondage, by His great and mighty hand. That hand is now being revealed physically through the work of His Son. He is the greater deliverer than Moses. He brings God's people out by God's gracious arm. He is the incarnate one that's being revealed here. And then in verse 2, we see that it says that God the Son lived humbly for us. He lived in humiliation. Again, He leaves heaven's glory and He comes to earth to become like us. To take on flesh. And not the way we would expect. We would expect Jesus to come into earth as God the Son and step onto a throne, wouldn't we? But that's not what we see. In verse 2, we see the humility of Jesus' life. We see Him growing up in an obscure place. He came not like a king. He came like us. He came wrapped in flesh, lying in a manger. There was no pomp and circumstance. There was no parade. There was no kingly robes laid over Him. He was only clothed in humility and God's love. That's what He's wrapped in when He comes. Verse 2 says He grew up obscurely. He didn't stand out. Isn't that interesting? The most lovely of men, the most glorious of men, didn't stand out from men. He was like men in every way. He was our sympathetic high priest. He understood men. He grew up with men. You ever think about this? I was, I'm going through the Gospel of Mark, and I'm reading through Mark and through other Gospel accounts. And you know, one thing I'm, I'm struck by as I go through these accounts, I go through the accounts and I never find a recorded encounter where Jesus runs into an old friend from Nazareth. He never runs into an old buddy. He never runs into some people he used to hang out with, which is, I think, part of his sympathetic ministry for us. He knows what it feels like to be lonely. He didn't have a lot of friends, obviously. He goes back to his home region, and there's no one ever greeting him except for his brothers, and they doubt him anyway. I believe he grew up much like us. At times, he was unnoticed. At times, he was alone. At times, he just didn't fit in. The Bible here says he had no beauty that we should desire him, at least outwardly. He was a rejected man, a man of sorrows. He was rejected by his own creation, those people he came to save. Yet they didn't esteem him as glorious. He grew up, this passage tells us here, that he grew up suffering to feel our pain. He knows what it's like to be rejected. But that suffering, though it was real and though it was part of his sympathetic ministry for us, is nothing to be compared with the kind of suffering he would incur at the cross for us. On the cross, the Bible here describes what will happen to Jesus. He will be stricken, he will be smitten, he will be afflicted, he will be wounded, and he will be crushed. Not by us, though it's because of our sin, but he is being stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, and crushed by his Father for us. Jesus, the Holy One, the Lovely One, the most esteemed of all men, was rejected because of us. He deserved praise, yet He chose pain for our sake. This is part of the Gospel that just amazes me, humbles me, that our Savior would come and live like this for me. God the Son took on flesh to suffer like us because He is a sympathetic high priest. He knows how we feel. He grew up through every stage of life just like us, yet by God's grace, He came to do it perfectly for us. For we fail as a child, as a young man or woman, and as an adult, Jesus never failed. He persevered, yet He felt the affliction that we feel, the rejection that we feel. Verse 3 tells us that He was despised. I mean, you ever think about His character, right? Think about his character, the character that we can see in the Gospels. Is there anything despicable about him? No, it's all good. It's all glorious. It's all lovely. However, in comparison to wicked men, they would feel threatened. They would reject that. They would despise that that makes them look less than perfect. His righteousness exposed their sinfulness. 
And so he was humiliated by the men he created. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Men, when they hear the truth about who Christ is, about who God is in Scripture, He is holy, righteous, undefiled. And He is the standard by which you're going to be judged. If you are not as righteous as Jesus, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, men don't like to hear that. But the good news on this is, you can be. You can receive His righteousness by faith alone. Not by works that you have done, not by works of religion, not by good deeds, but by trusting in God's provision, which is a Messiah who would take our place and live a righteous life in our place so that His righteousness would be accounted to us and we could have the righteousness of Christ. He became sin for us so that we could receive that. There's a double imputation going on at the cross. He receives our sin, we receive His righteousness. It's amazing to think about this. It's amazing to think that our God would be despised for us. We deserved God's anger against us. We deserve to be despised by God and men. We deserve that. It's sorrow and suffering is what we deserve, not what Jesus deserved. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus to be rejected for us so we could be accepted by Him. That is amazing grace. Number two. At the Lord's Supper, we celebrate not just the humiliation of Christ. We celebrate God's great compassion. Look at verse 4. Verse 4a, the first part. It shows us God's compassion for sinners here in this first part. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. (laughs) What? He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. You know what this is? This is... The sympathetic one, looking at the pitiful ones and showing us mercy. This is Jesus looking at us, grieved over our sinful state, saddened over us. It's by the knowledge of this that we are saved. It's because Jesus came into this earth. Not only did He just come and suffer like us, He saw what our suffering was a result of, which is sin. And He carried that Throughout his life, he was grieved. Why does he weep over Jerusalem? Because those people should have seen his glory. And he was grieved. Because sin will blind you to the glory of Jesus. It will rob you of everything, even eternal life. But sin can be removed with one stroke. The stroke that was due you. The stroke that was due me. The stroke that Jesus felt. He carried these things for us. He felt these things for us. So how should we respond to His love and His compassion and His mercy? Well, how did they respond in verse 4b? Yet, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Again, sin is so so deceitful. It blinds mankind to the beauty and the grace of God in Christ. Israel here was so blinded by their spiritual deadness, their spiritually dead condition, they rejected their Messiah when He stood before them, when He arrived and He preaches the truth and it shows miracle after miracle to them. They rejected Him because their sin had built an idol in their heart that was greater than the God-revealed grace that came to them in Christ. Look with me at Mark's Gospel to see that. In Mark 15... This literally happened. The very people who had the oracles of God, the Old Testament Scripture, should have seen the Messiah, should have seen His works, should have seen His life, should have understood His teaching. Yet they esteemed Him smitten of God because He exposed them. And they loved their sin more than they loved their Savior. A church, that is the danger for everyone today. When people love their sin so much, they will not repent of their sin. They will cling to it, even in the face of God's grace. There is nothing worse than this. It is, in essence, what they're doing here. When it says in Matthew 15, 12, it says, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate rather, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas 
And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Look down at verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. Notice this. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by, this is what Isaiah is speaking of. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now what strikes me here is this. These people who are wagging their heads and not esteeming Jesus heard Him preach. They were with Him. They'd seen Him in the synagogues. They'd seen Him in the temple. They had seen Him ministering. Yet, because He exposed their sinfulness, they didn't want to have Him. They didn't see his sacrifice as something that God was doing for them. And so in verse 32, or verse 31 rather, it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then this is a striking sentence. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Everyone despised Jesus. They all despised Him because, again, He exposed their sinfulness. And listen, church, if you can't see yourself here at Golgotha or there in Isaiah 53, you're still blind and dead in your own sins. You were there with those men crying, Crucify Him! At one point in your life where you're there now, whenever God is dealing with your heart, exposing your sin... And you're saying, I don't want to come to Him. I want to do this. Well, that's that sin that holds you enslaved. And until God breaks that, until God sets you free, you will be a slave of that sin, and you are no different than these men. We cannot look at Isaiah 53 and think that, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was there. No, we would have done that, and we did that. But the good news is, even though we were dead in our sins, blinded by our sins, God Himself can open our eyes and give life to dead sinners. We're just like these people here. Every one of us have been in this condition. If you're a believer now, you didn't start out that way, right? You started off dead. An unbelieving, dead, spiritually corrupt sinner. Before God's compassion came and opened your dead, depraved, sin-blinded eyes, you couldn't see the beauty of Jesus. You couldn't see the grace and forgiveness that comes through this amazing act of mercy on the cross through God Himself becoming incarnate, taking our place, becoming our substitute. We were blinded by our sins until all of a sudden, one day, in God's amazing grace, He opens our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and His grace through this great sacrifice. That is the miracle of regeneration. And it comes first from understanding that we are those dead, depraved sinners. And that we need Him to open our eyes. Look what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2, verse 1. This verse summarizes everyone in this building. This verse summarizes all of mankind. We're all guilty of the first couple of verses here. The fourth verse, however, changes everything. And if you're you're reading this and you are in the fourth verse, it is because of God's grace. Because you couldn't have got to the fourth verse by yourself. It's impossible for man to save himself. According to this, Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. means lived. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, every one of us, apart from God's intervention, God's compassion, were dead. We were followers of the God of this world, Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We were all living in the passions of our flesh. 
following the desires of our flesh. By nature, we were at war with God. But then it says something absolutely astounding in verse 4, does it not? Though this is the case, though we deserve, according to verses 1, 2, and 3, we deserve God's righteous indignation and wrath, separation and hell for eternity. Though we deserve that, He didn't give that to us. Look what He did. But God, abounding or being rich in mercy, compassion, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You will never rejoice over 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 unless you understand the first three verses of this text. You cannot appreciate what Christ did on the cross until God opens your eyes to see that our sins are what hung Him on the cross and His love held Him there. Until you recognize this, until you see this, you cannot rejoice over God's great compassion, which we celebrate at the Lord's table. We need to understand, apart from God's compassion, we have His wrath abiding on us. We deserve it. We have earned it. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die for sin. God demands it. God's holiness and justice demand death for our rebellion against Him. But in His mercy and grace, He provides a substitute to absorb death for us. That substitute is Jesus. Go back with me to Isaiah 53.5. Apart from Jesus' substitutionary atonement, through His substitutionary life, we would actually be under God's curse. Isaiah 53, verse 5. We're reminded here, apart from God's compassion, we would be dead in our sins. It says here in verse 5 that God, God is crushing His own Son out of compassion for us. Look what it says. But He was wounded for our transgressions. That means our rebellion against God's law. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's our sin guilt. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God. With His stripes, we are healed. We are made whole. That's what He's talking about, spiritually speaking. God has sent His Son to take our place. And through God's compassion, He crushes Jesus for our iniquities, for our guilt. That's just, again, astounding. It's showing us the love of God, the compassion of God, that He would actually set His Son in our place and crush Him to death. And we know that it is substitutionary. When you read this text, you'll notice in verse 5, it's for our transgressions, our iniquities. It's brought us peace. We are healed through His stripes. It is all about what God is doing to glorify Himself through the redemption of a people, through the work of His Son. It is Jesus who becomes our perfect substitute in every way. Not just in bringing us Forgiveness of sins, but by taking our place and being crushed to death for our sins. Jesus is crushed here so that we would not be condemned under God's wrath. He is literally and eternally scarred by our sin so we would be literally and eternally healed from our sin. That's what Isaiah is saying in verse 5. You realize this, Jesus is the Theanthropos, the forever God-man. When He ascended into glory, He ascended with a body. That body, according to what it says at the end of John's Gospel, still bore the marks of the cross. Thomas could touch the nail-scarred hands, the hole in His side. Jesus will be forever the God-man. Forever in heaven, Jesus will bear the marks of our sin and we will bear nothing that reminds us of our sin. Because He absorbed it for us. He took it on the cross. Verse 6, look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. The reason Jesus had to do this for us, the reason God had to show us great compassion, is because this describes us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, we haven't just missed the mark that God has required us to obey. We have sought a new mark, went away from the mark of law, away from His law, away from His commandments, away from His directions. We have sought our own way. We are like sheep that are gone astray. 
And here in verse 6, it tells us that God in His compassion interceded for us. And we need to understand this biblically here. Apart from the good shepherd seeking out his sheep, we would all be eternally lost. Salvation is the work of God, the good shepherd. The good shepherd comes after his sheep. The sheep don't seek the shepherd. We seek other things. That's what it's saying here. None of us sought God on our own. Not one person here. None of us sought God on our own, but God came seeking and saving His sheep. Look at John 10. We see that there. This is part of the compassion of God. God came in human flesh. God the Son, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He came seeking His sheep. Look what it says in 10.14. Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus dies for His sheep. And notice the emphatic statement in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And notice the emphatic point here. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He will get His sheep. He will seek them out. And that is God's compassion. We don't deserve this. We can't earn His favor to come after us. We have defiled Him and we have sinned against Him, yet He comes after us in His grace through the person and work of Jesus as He humbles Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the love of God for sinners. It was made manifest incarnate in Jesus What I love about this is when we study this out, we think about this, we see that when Jesus does this, He comes because of God's compassion. He is coming willingly as a sacrifice for us, as our substitute, but He is coming willingly out of God's compassion to be crushed to death for us. So we would not receive God's condemnation. Understand this, the life that God breathes into us is the life that He crushed out of Jesus. That is the life you have been given he crushes his son to death even death on a cross brutal death that we deserve he does that so he can breathe into us his life-giving spirit and grant to us what we could never earn if you go down in isaiah 53 verse 7 through 9 we can see god's compassion laid out even more there we see god's compassion when Jesus was taken away here to be slaughtered so His sheep would be spared. Jesus is taken away to be slaughtered so those wandering sheep would be spared. And church, that's us. Look what it says in 7-9. through He was oppressed and He was afflicted. That means He was beat down, mocked, and browbeat. That's the actual literal, literal translations here. He was mocked. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, he was stricken, it says, for the transgression of my people. He's talking about the spiritual sons of Abraham here. All who would believe by faith, trust in God's word, he is stricken for them, for his people, his elect. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was, he was pure, he was perfect, he was always pleasing to the Father, yet he was taken away to be slaughtered, it says. What I find really striking is when you read verse 7, he was mocked, he was browbeat, he was beat down by others, and he opened not his mouth. He was falsely accused in his crucifixion. People lied about Him. They sought people to lie about Jesus. Though they couldn't convince everyone, they did this out of their depravity. They sought to malign Him. And Jesus sat there silently. And understand this. Jesus, when He was being tried, He could have pled innocence and could have proved it. He was innocent. He could have proved and pled innocence, but He didn't. He could have demanded sinners pay their own sin debts, and He didn't. 
Here in this text, it says he opened not his mouth. He was silent, church. He was silent so that we can shout God's praises. He was a silent lamb led to the slaughter so that we could sing about the glory of our God and his great compassion for sinners like me and like you. The Lamb of God dies in silence. Jesus dies alone on the cross, abandoned. His disciples left Him. He's alone. He is sympathizing with every one of us there. He is receiving on the cross all of our judgment. And He doesn't even cry out for God's justice to fall on someone else. He receives it in our place. And He does so so His lost sheep can sing God's praise. Sing about the compassion of our God. His silence grants us that. It grants us, us the ability to praise Him forever. Look with me at Revelation 5 to see that. Revelation 5 says, Because Jesus was silent, we can do this. Revelation 5, 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped They're worshiping Jesus. Church, we're going to be in that congregation. Our voices will be heard if we have turned from our sins and trusted in this Savior. If we have trusted in Him and that He stood silent when we were being condemned, we should be singing this praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is worth praising and honoring, glorifying and telling others about and repenting of sin for and following after because He came into this earth to take our place. He's our substitute, church. God, a very God, God the Son, leaves heaven's glory, enters into this world and suffers like we should have suffered for eternity so that we could sing His praises. And glorify His Father's compassion for sinners. That celebration begins every month when we celebrate the gospel at the Lord's table. We celebrate His humiliation, His compassion, and we celebrate God's satisfaction. Thirdly, go back with me to Isaiah 53, 53.10-12. tells us that only Jesus' willful, you need to note that, Only Jesus' willful sacrifice could satisfy what God requires of us. See, God requires obedience. God requires obedience to His law. Every one of us are commanded to repent and trust in Him. Every one of us are commanded to follow His commands. Yet, we can't do it in a way that is complete and perfect and continual. Even if we could do it for an instant, that's not what God requires. He requires complete and total, continual obedience to His Word. He requires righteousness. He requires perfection. And only Jesus had that. And only Jesus coming into this world saying, I willfully give myself for those that you have purchased by my blood so they could actually have my righteousness. Only through that sacrifice, that willing desire to honor His Father, that only through that that we are saved. He fulfills God's requirement for us. He is our righteousness. He is the one who has sought to please God for us and imputed that to us by His grace, by His favor. 53.10-12 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. In this verse, again, it's stating that the Lord Himself will crush His own Son. He has put Him to grief because He is going to make His soul an offering for guilt. That's the word propitiation. He's going to make His life an appeasement offering. 
He is going to appease God's righteous demands for us. He is an offering in our place that satisfies God's requirements. Jesus suffered for our sins and bore our guilt. What's amazing, when you read the text, as it goes further down, you see more and more about the glorious grace of God. He's saying though that Jesus is really doing all this to identify with us in every way because this is what we deserved. He identifies us in every way, even in the way he dies. He's being crushed under the weight of our sin. He's killed like a criminal. This is exactly what we are. We are all criminals. We are all lawbreakers. We are all offenders of God. And Jesus was being crushed like one of us. Jesus is being crushed by the law and the justice of God, not because of his sin. He had none. He is feeling the weight of our sin laid upon him. It is being imputed to him. God the Father is looking at God the Son and saying, those that I would have you die for, I'm going to lay their sin and guilt upon you. I'm going to mete out my wrath on that. I'm going to satisfy my judgment against that on you. You will absorb their debt. And Jesus says, I will do so willingly, no matter the cost. And so Jesus dies under the weight of our sin. He's crushed. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10 use the word crushed. It's an interesting Hebrew word. It's dakah. And crushing, in this context, speaks of an agonizing death. It actually means to be trampled to death under people's feet. Jesus is literally under the weight of our sinful feet. Our sins are compiled and placed upon Him, and God is seeing Him as if He is us, and His wrath is poured out on them, on Him, and we are being atoned for. He is taking our place. He is offering a sacrifice for us that is perfect and righteous, and God will accept that for us. 53.10 says that the Lord willed Christ to feel this. He willed that Jesus would feel the weight of our sin. That is, that is amazing. And he did that for an unbelievable reason. And this is the part to me that's, that's too good not to be true when you see this. Look with me at uh, Acts, actually. Acts 22, or 2.22. Go with me to Acts 2.22. Isaiah 53 should take us here to Acts 2.22 so that we can see the reason that it was the Lord's will to crush His Son. Here is the reason. We'll see it in Acts 2.22, and then we'll look at Hebrews 2.9. But here in 2.22, it's really clear. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan Horizo means determined plan, predetermined plan. And foreknowledge, prognosis, it is prearranged plan, is what he means here. His prearranged knowledge, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus is feeling the weight of our sin because this was God's plan to redeem us. It wasn't an accident. These men were not out of control. God used His power to move these men to do what they did in order to redeem His people from their sin by crushing His Son to death. Look what Hebrews 9 says. Or 2.9, I'm sorry, 2.9. Here's why the Lord willed to crush His Son and put our sin weight upon Him in 2.9-18. through 18. But we see Him, speaking of Jesus here, Him who... For a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will, tell, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. 
And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children that God has given him share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But, or for, surely it is not angels that he keeps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here is why it was the will of God to crush his son. The death of Jesus, the crushing of Jesus was in accord with God's sovereign plan to save his people from their sin. He did that to save those who are his children. He did that to take and give them a substitute, give them a righteousness they could never achieve on their own. Jesus' death and his life were part of God's plan of our salvation. We need to remember that and be amazed by that when we come to the communion table to partake. We need to remember this, that God the Son humbled Himself, made Himself our guilt offering. And He did it because God the Father had great compassion on us. And Jesus came willingly to be our appeasing sacrifice. He appeased God's wrath by giving His life in our place so that God's justice would be meted out upon a man. A man had to die because men have sinned against God. And the man, Christ Jesus, died in our place. The Lamb of God entered into flesh to bring us His obedience and to remove God's curse. That's what's happening when Jesus was incarnate. We often think, and I know the church we, we hear as a whole have talked about this often, we often think, though, still, that the cross is really where it all took place. That's not where it all took place. It began in glory, in the triune counsel of God, when He determined that He would save a people to glorify His name, and then He sends forth His Son as a babe into the world. And Jesus lives that perfect life that we could never live, dies the death that we deserve to remove the curse of God and to grant us His righteousness. But for Jesus to do that, it had to come at a great cost. And that's what we celebrate this morning. For Jesus to save us, he had to go through the crushing of the cross. On the cross, God the Father pours out the cup of His entire wrath that is reserved for us. And He pours it out upon our willing substitute, Jesus Christ. He pours it out on Him so that we would never feel it. We would never know it. All we will ever know if we have repented of our sins and trusted in God's grace all we will ever know is God's praise and love and peace. On the cross, God the Father pours out the wrath we deserve. On the cross, Jesus willingly drinks that cup of wrath for us. He drinks it to the bottom. This is the astounding part and describes the deity of Jesus. Jesus was more than a man. He was a man, fully man and fully God. Because on the cross... An eternity of hell was poured out on him and he absorbed every bit of it and satisfied God's requirements completely. It is done, it is finished to telestai. There is no wrath reserved for those who trust in Christ. No condemnation. The eternity that we deserved in hell, that wrath, that continual righteous indignation fell upon Jesus as being the God-man and he absorbed it completely, being perfect. And being holy. He absorbed that for us. And not only that. He imputed to us his righteousness. So that God doesn't just see us with a zero account. He sees us with a positive account. The righteousness of Jesus laid to us. And church. That required the crushing of his son. To glorify his grace. To glorify his love. This is love. This is the love of God. This is why we repent. This is why we pursue righteousness. This is why we turn from sin and we trust in our Savior and we follow Him all our days and we turn away from this world's lusts 
It's not because we're trying to earn favor with God. God's given us the favor of Christ. It's a response of the forgiven heart to walk in sanctification with joy, anticipating the day we see the sinless one, our sin bearer, face to face. Can you imagine this, church? What we're celebrating here is the body and the blood of Christ, but one day you're going to see it. You're going to see those marks and know that that was mine. I deserve that. Why did you do this? God so loved the world that he sent his son to take our place. Not that we would live and dwell in sin, that we would turn from it, examine our hearts, look at the glory of Christ in his work on the cross, and run from the things that our bodies used to lust after. Run from the things that the world says we must have. And run to the only thing that's acceptable to God, which is Jesus Christ. He was accepted in our place. God was satisfied with his life, his death, and his resurrection testifies to that. We're justified, declared righteous, based on the fact that the Holy One did not suffer decay in the grave. He rose on the third day victorious with no decay. Sin did not dwell in him, and if we are in him, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We are counted righteous. That's all done as a result of God's compassion through Jesus' humiliation. God's wrath was satisfied. His law and His justice were satisfied with Christ's work on the cross. Christ's perfect life. As a result of Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection, all who trust in God's Son, God's provision for sinners, all those who trust in that are made acceptable in God's sight. And all those who are made acceptable in God's sight are united with God eternally. That's what we celebrate around this communion table. We're united to God through the blood of Christ. It's what makes us part of the family of God. It is what universally covers us and makes us acceptable so that when God sees us, He no longer sees Randy's sin, your sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son and He loves us. And He brings us in. That's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table today. This is not a ritual. This is an act of worship. This, as we partake of this Lord's Supper, we are thanking our substitute. We are thanking our Father. We are rejoicing over what the Spirit has done to open our eyes so that we can see the glory of Jesus and His sacrifice. But let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you are not yet convinced of these truths, this communion table is not for you. There is nothing here but judgment for you if you partake. However, if you are here and God is dealing with your heart, today is the day of salvation. Repent and trust in this great and glorious message. You can have reconciliation with God. The enmity can be removed and grace can abound in your life. No one here is perfect. And as we come as Christians to partake of this table, we don't come because we're perfect. We come because we're broken and we are reminded every month that this testifies to why God came because we cannot satisfy God on our own. We're broken sinners. Yet we're redeemed, purchased back, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And out of thankfulness, we come here to be nourished by that truth. The Lord's Supper should nourish you as a Christian this morning. The Lord's table helps us do that. The elements here on this table remind us that true worship is only made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. The only way we can bring a sweet aroma to God, a praise to God from our lips, is because of the work of Jesus. We're worshipers through His righteousness, not through our deeds. When the bread is broken, it's symbolizing the beating that Christ's body took for our sins. That beating set us free from slavery to our sin, and it set us free from the fear of God's condemnation. When we come to the table and we drink of the cup, the cup is poured out, and it symbolizes the pouring out of Jesus' lifeblood for us. The blood imparts to us new life. It grants us trust in God's promises that if we are in Him, we are secure, and we will walk in righteousness and repentance. And we will respond to His work. 
Father God, we come this morning not based on our own works. We come here to rejoice in the work of Christ. We come here this morning weak, anemic, spiritually depleted, and we come here to be fed and nourished on the gospel. This is our hope. This is our identification. You identified with us in your humiliation and you have granted us grace through your compassion and we know that we are now in Christ eternally and we can come before you as broken sinners knowing that you will give us what we need to heal us, strengthen us, and equip us to do your will in the world. We aren't just saved to get into heaven. We know that, God. That is a great and glorious promise you've given us but you've given us eternal life so we would magnify your greatness on earth as well as in heaven. We want to do that as we come to the table. We want to come to the table this morning at Sovereign Grace as sinners thankful for their Savior. We want to exalt the work of Jesus in this church, in our lives, and point people to the hope that comes through His righteousness, through His sacrifice, through His ongoing intercession for his children. I thank you, Father, that you seek your children. You save your sheep and you will go to great lengths to convict and convert your sheep. The greatest of which was sending forth your son to be our sacrifice. Thank you for that, Father. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we can come this morning and be comforted and understand truth because you have shown us the truth that we see in Christ through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us understand that and rejoice in that as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper today. In Christ's name.